0: Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. What is up Market Pulse podcast listeners? You have reached episode 50 of the Market Pulse podcast and I I say you've reached episode 50 but this isn't really like one of those serial style podcasts where you kind of need to listen to all the episodes in an order As often what we're talking about becomes dated, potentially quickly, potentially over weeks or months, um, depending on what the topic is that I'm rambling about. But that's okay because I bring that up because I actually had a small listener question this week from someone asking if they need to go back and start from episode one, which I would say don't because that's a bit cringy. But my short answer is no, because long-time listeners will understand that Every now and again, I like to focus in on something topical or a little bit juicy like some of the recent ones were GameStop and ethical investing. I know I did a big episode on ESG investing. So I'll go into a little bit more detail that when we actually answer that listener question but plenty to chat about this week. I missed a week as I was head down smashing out some assignments last weekend and the prospect of getting a potty episode away seemed to kind of fade away last Sunday when I was still about a thousand words away from finishing and it was due that night so here is to organizational skills kids they're very useful but we're going to touch on some aussie markets related stuff we're going to touch on some global stuff but let us not waste any more of your time you are listening in to the market pulse podcast my name is dion grubin the host of this show and you're tuning into episode 50 the wedged edition Well, let's take a look at how the markets performed this week and it was broadly a good effort both here at home and in the US. So the Australian index, the ASX 200, that was up 1.7%. Over in the US, the S&P 500 was up 1.57%. The NASDAQ down just a a little bit over 0.9%. So not as good from the tech dominated indices. So that's a little bit about how markets were during the week and how they're performing. And we'll start looking at some Australian market stuff before we go a little bit more international. But this week, we had a really big IPO on the ASX. Uh, Big in the sense that it jumped very significantly from its issue price. And that is the IPO of Aussie marketplace website, Airtasker. Now, you probably would have noticed Airtasker in the news this week due to the IPO. Uh, At first, it was because they were meant to IPO on Monday. And then there was this ASX tech glitch issues that had to delay it by day uh, and that's meant that they IPO'd on Tuesday instead. So there's this kind of narrative going around about there's a few embarrassing hiccups that the ASX have had over the past 12 months. Remember we had that day where this, the market was closed the whole day because of like a, something happened early in the morning and then it was just done. So that's interesting. But anyway, that's not really what this is about. So Airtasker, you might be familiar with it just from a personal point of view. For the uninitiated, you'll see a lot of comparisons being thrown around to businesses like, say, like a ride-sharing business, like an Uber or an Uber Eats, like a delivery business, or like an Airbnb, which is fair in terms of, you know, this platform AirTasker being an ability to, you know, act as a medium in bringing together, you know, businesses or consumers together. But it's a little bit, a little bit different um, for a few reasons. So, firstly, AirTasker itself works by offering a platform for those that. Need work done, so they can put up an ad to advertise their needs, and for those who are handy or who have the ability to do whatever is being asked, they can advertise themselves as people that can, you know, for a fee, come to complete that. So, you know so it's often used as a site to find handyman style jobs. So it could be simple stuff like fixing a light in your house. Maybe you need your lawn mowed. Uh, maybe you're going away for the weekend. You want to see if someone will look after your dogs. It can even be used in sort of I guess more marketing requests. Like I actually engaged with it once a couple of years ago in relation to some logo design stuff. So in that case, it gave me the ability to connect with people that were graphic designers and I could see some of their past work and some of their past ratings. And they would pitch, you know, you know, I can do it for this price, and they'll make a little bit of extra cash because I, I guess that. They might work in that kind of field in their on their actual day job, but they're doing like this is a little bit of a side gig. So that's AirTasker, I guess, uh, an interesting aspect. And when I say interesting aspect, I mean in relation to differences between it and platforms it's compared to like Airbnb and Uber, is that let's say you live so let's say you live in Parramatta and maybe you're moving to Coogee, for example, and you don't own a car yourself personally, so you need a little bit of help to get some of the big pieces of furniture like your couch and your TV and your bed over to your new unit, well, you could put up that on Airtasker and say, look, I I need to move. I want to do it on, say, April 10th and I've got a couch and a bed and someone, say person one might say, I can do that. I've got this, you know, my mate and I will come and do it and we'll do it for this price. But then someone else might come in and say, I can do the same thing, but I'll do it for 30 bucks less or whatever. So I guess that's a point of difference between those other platforms where there isn't like a price competition, like a bidding war kind of competition that can happen. You know, if you order an Uber on um, Uber's platform, it's the same price. It doesn't matter which driver picks it up. It's going to cost you the same price to go from your house to the city. So that's Airtasker. Now, Airtasker themselves actually finished the week $1. forty-three per share and that's significant because that is a massive uh, leap skip and a jump from where they actually IPO'd at. For investors getting in on the actual IPO, initial public offering on Airtasker in the last few months, the issue price in the IPO was actually $0.65. So again, it's another one of those kind of examples where you've got this company that immediately what doubled, more than doubled from the actual issue price um, based on how it ended at the end of the week. And I say uh, another example, I guess, because there's been a few out there, especially when it comes to tech stocks where they tend to move pretty quickly on the IPO. There's a lot of momentum and hype behind businesses like this, especially if there's been a bit of a build-up for the actual company listing in the first place. And I don't think the, the whole mishap with the ASX um, in terms of them not listing on Monday doesn't seem to affect anything. People are people who want to get on the, the train are still always going to want to get on the train. In terms of how AirTasker as a business has performed, so they now tout that they have nine, just under a million, so nine hundred fifty thousand customers. So they're the consumers who are looking for things to be done, and one hundred fifty thousand what they what they call taskers, so people putting their hand up to fulfil those various tasks that are up there. From a financials point of view. So this financial year, so ending on June 30, 2021, they they themselves forecast revenue of $24.5 million and a gross profit of $22.8 million, but the actual net position will be a loss after tax of $12.3 million. So depending on how you look at it, it uh, it might be a little bit expensive or maybe it's gotten away from a point where you're considering investing in Airtasker yourself uh, considering it still hasn't reached that profitability stage as a business yet, for me, it's not so much about that as it is about IPOs. I, I tend to avoid IPOs. A little bit of a just, a, I guess, an investing thesis that I follow myself. I find that IPOs, just the the sheer nature of IPOs, is trying to sell a company, trying to sell a business, right? And and often that can mean that these things list at prices that are quite favorable to those who are running the show in terms of building the book of investors to buying to the IPO, the investment banks behind the actual IPO. And that's not to say that this is a bad business or any business is necessarily bad, you know, because at, at some point every business had to IPO. So it's not a criticism on the business itself. It's just that I tend to let the dust settle before I'd be looking at investing in the company myself. So for me, Airtasker is one that I'll throw onto a watch list just to observe over the next few years, but it's not one that I'm watching that IPO spike up and going, oh, I'm going to miss out on this, I better FOMO into it. But that's how I kind of view these things. And yes, it does mean that because that's the way I view these things, sometimes I watch, you know, share price's double <laughs> across a week and miss out on it but that's that's at least I guess a risk that I'm not willing to take in in terms of I guess the, the downside risk being that the hype the initial hype from an IPO sort of dies out a little bit and it settles back down maybe maybe for this it's what is a dollar 43 maybe it settles back down closer to a dollar who knows maybe in 6 months time it's 2 you know you never know the one annoying thing about air tasker is it was another stock that the whole narrative around Reddit trading forums and online trading sorry, online you know, chat forums hyping up a stock. Like there was an article in the AFR that, in their words, stated that Reddit traders fanned the Airtasker rally. And they have an infographic in this article showing some person on Reddit saying, "Airtasker' is going to Saturn," as in like it's a rocket." is everyone ready with all these emojis and that's and they're sort of leaning on this as therefore Reddit is fanning the hype of AirTasker which I am finding more and more in my and this is all my opinion by the way so don't, don't, let's just let's just flag that but I'm finding more and more that there's a fair bit of lazy journalism going on with stocks over the past few months especially since the GameStop saga where they're just chalking it straight up to, ah, oh, it must have been Reddit that, that caused that stock to spike. When my experience has been this has happened forever, like especially IPOs, IPOs often, especially tech IPOs can often get a bit crazy when they launch. So for example, in the article, they highlight this comment by some user on Reddit, like the one I just said. And if you go to Reddit, this comment has like four upvotes. And the and the whole post has, you know, like seventy upvotes. Like that is not <laughs> the reason why a, a stock is spiking in price because a few people think it's going to be a good buy. Anyway, but that's that's what I'm noticing too. Just that this I think it's a bit of a lazy rhetoric to to basically chalk it all up to Reddit traders uh, when it comes to this. Sure, there might be a few people. Well, there might be people on Reddit that are trying to hype up stocks, but I don't think you can analyze the entire week that was for Airtasker and say, yep, that was that post that had four upvotes on Reddit. <laughs> Another big jump that occurred on the markets this week pertains to Crown Resorts, which is ASX Code CWN. Obviously, as you would know, a, a large gaming, gaming entertainment group operating many casinos across Australia. And so around, at least last week, they were settling around $10 a share. And then suddenly on Monday, you would have seen them jump up to almost $12 a share. And they've settled this week at around $11.79. And that's because they've actually had a takeover proposal come in from a very large global asset manager called Blackstone Group out of the US. And that is that offer that's come in is pricing it at about $11.85 per share. So when you see this kind of thing happen on the market, if there's ever like a takeover proposal, you'll generally see... So if the share price is sitting below that takeover proposal price, it'll very quickly, basically immediately just jump up to that price. And it it becomes this weird thing where you as the investor can wait and see if the takeover goes through and then eventually that company would be delisted off the stock exchange perhaps and you'll have your shares liquidated for that takeover price. Otherwise, if you are looking at this jump that's occurred this week and it's what it so it ended the week at $11.79 Australian which is a little tiny, like what, $0.06 cents below what this offer price is of $11.85 you could, if you want, just sell the shares now, and because you know, at the end of the day, if it goes through exactly how it's looking at the moment, then you know, what's the point of waiting? I guess. Now, maybe that's a decision that some people have made because, if you zoom back out of this actual takeover offer, the business itself, so Crown itself, has a fair few regulatory headwinds, so to speak, um, coming in from a lot of pressure from Victorian government. Uh, from the New South Wales government in assessment to a new site that they had built, and none of that stuff is actually still, or none of it's actually finished at the moment. Like the, I believe the Victorian government's inquiry into Crown is actually starting in the next week or so. So maybe in some ways, as a, as a, I guess a risk-based proposal, you might just take this offer now and, and sell out your Crown shares. But who knows? Now, one more final thing to say about these kind of offers. I'll say the specific to the Crown one, but generally speaking, when you see these kind of things is these offers come in, that doesn't mean that therefore it's locked in. So we're all good to go from here. So the board itself at Crown would be assessing this offer. There'd be a shareholder vote. So there's no actual certainty that this whole takeover transaction occurs. Perhaps there's a bit of pushback. So sometimes you see things where they push back on the actual valuation and the offer of the business. So they might push back and think that the $11, I think it was $0.85 cents, I, I said, they might push back and say that's not enough, for example. And then maybe Blackstone's like, oh, well, we're, we're over it now. Or maybe they up their offer, for example, who knows. Uh, or maybe they pull out of it altogether after it. So just keep that in mind. Nothing's certain at this stage. Their share price reaction is in, well, it is in reaction to this offer, but it's not concrete yet. Now, probably one more final thing if we just keep it in Australia just for a little bit more, just from a broader macro point of view and important news point of view is the end of JobKeeper that is ending today actually as I record this on Sunday. And so in the end, it's come in at a cost of about $90 billion. The JobKeeper wage subsidy program for businesses obviously started during COVID last year. And the talk uh, about this, I guess, is how will the labor market absorb this coming to an end you know how many jobs might be lost because job keepers coming to an end will it be significant i know these are people's lives that we're talking about but in terms of just purely from a data point of view is it going to be significant is it going to act as a bit of a speed bump in the recovering labor market i noted that the federal treasury their their own forecast is between 100 to 150 thousand. Current JobKeeper recipients will lose their employment when this actual uh, when JobKeeper ends. So they're estimating about 100 to 150,000 recipients will will lose their actual employment because of it. Now, on the other end of this discussion is that there's some good, I guess, some good indicators on how the job market and the labour market's performing at the moment. I note a economic report this week from Comsec saying that. Well, they're, they're reporting on data from the National Skills Commission (NSC), reporting that skilled internet vaca- vacancies, rather, rose by seven percent in February, and if in seasonally adjusted terms, it's up twenty-four point eight percent on the year. So, and they're they're touting that vacancies, advertised vacancies, are up to nine-year highs at the moment. So that's showing that there's a lot of demand out there for workers. It's another indicator on the same stuff, so on, on job ads and that's done by ANZ and they their last data they released is they're saying that job ads are 13.4% higher than the pre-pandemic level, so which indicates that additional just over 20,000 jobs are being advertised on average per month and that as in higher than the actual pre-pandemic levels. So that's the kind of discussion at the moment. As JobKeeper starts to end, how much of an impact will this have on the labor market? I, I kind of tended to think that there might be a little bit of a blip in the data because of it coming to an end. From an investing point of view, it's not something that I think, at least for me, is not on my radar, but I am curious to see. Yeah, I'm curious to see how much of an impact it actually has on the labor market because we're going to know over the next couple of months, especially as that data starts to come through, and, and JobKeeper ending today, you know how much of an impact that's going to have on our labor force. Okay, lastly, let's zoom out a little bit to some fascinating news that has caught you know, global news attention and that is this gigantic container ship called the Ever Given causing a little bit of a bottleneck through an extremely crucial shipping route that runs through Egypt called the Suez Canal. Now, no doubt you've seen pictures of this ship that's effectively turned sideways in the canal and you probably would have seen memes about it it's become, it's become a big meme thing that everyone's um, making jokes about but it's effectively turned sideways in the canal, it's down near the southern end of the Suez Canal so near the actual city of Suez which is where you enter from if you're coming from the Red Sea and out from that the Arabian Sea area Now, the northern end of the Suez Canal is a city, a port city called Port Said, which is the Mediterranean sea side of the canal. Now, if you're really, really bored at work today when you're listening to this and um, you want something to do, jump on Google or go to a website that will track live marine vessels around the world. There are quite a few. You can just go Google that. You can go live marine vessel, global marine vessels or something like that. I remember going on one for the first time a few years ago because you can see ship activity uh, around the Strait of Hamas, which is this really narrow part of this waterway that you have to cross to get into the Persian Gulf. And you know you always read statistics on how much of the world's oil you know transported through that one little area. And if you go on these websites, you can actually just see just how many containers uh, are just... Entering and leaving the Persian Gulf, coming through, coming I guess coming and going from countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, and they have to they have to actually cross through that really narrow part called the Strait of Hormuz. But anyway, the, that's a little bit of a tangent. But if you go to these websites, so one of them you can go to is just called MarineTraffic.com, and it's kind of like a Google Maps, but you'll see lots of dots everywhere representing boats, and you find Egypt on the map. And then sort of east of Cairo, you'll notice this waterway, which will be you know it'll be labeled the Suez Canal, but you can also kind of tell it's it's that's what it is because it's very very obviously man-made because it's very straight it's not it's, it's clearly not a natural waterway. but once you've found the canal, if you go south along the canal till you reach where the actual city of Suez is itself, where it opens out to the Red Sea, just before that, so, so, so it's not far into the canal from the southern end is you'll see a small cluster of ships in there themselves. And if you click on one of them, that'll be the now world famous Ever Given. And there's a couple other boats around it and you'll notice that they're all like heavy tug ships, the, the ones that are there trying to help get it out. And you can actually zoom out and see some other tugs he, heading down the canal or up the canal uh, i'm guessing to help out but the other reason i say to check out the map is if you zoom out to the whole canal you'll quickly notice that or you'll see all the ships that the news are talking about that are stuck wondering what to do because there's a there's actually a small cluster of ships in the middle of the canal that are just sitting there but the really big groups are on both the northern end and the southern ends of the canal so the northern being the mediterranean end and the southern end being the Red Sea end that eventually goes out to the Arabian Sea. You'll just see this cluster bottleneck of ships just sitting there because they can't actually go through the canal at the moment. And it's fascinating because you're just seeing this live shot of the knock-on effects of this vessel being stuck. But we'll get back on track. So the Suez Canal itself, as I said, it so runs through Egypt, it connects the Red Sea and further... So if you come out from the Red Sea, it goes out to the Arabian Sea. But it connects that part of the world t- directly through to the Mediterranean because you know, if you go back a long time ago before all this, this canal was built, it, you would have to take a trip around Africa's Cape of Good Hope. So the development of that canal in terms of like a shipping logistics point of view just saved a ton of time. It obviously then saves a ton of fuel and costs associated with cargo hauling. In fact, I actually finished a book very recently that I got at Christmas. It was called Prisoners of Geography, it's by Tim Marshall, and he touches on the Suez Canal in terms of its I guess its importance a few times throughout the book. One of those he highlights the canal as, you know, the alternative way to going around Africa's Cape of Good Hope. And he notes that the creation of the Suez Canal shaves about nine and a half thousand kilometres off the journey between India and Western Europe purely because you can just go from India and cut straight through Egypt into the Mediterranean instead of going all the way around the African continent. And I mean, this book is a few years old, so potentially the data is a little bit off, but he goes further to talk about how the canal itself sees 8% of the world's entire daily trade and 2.5% of the world's daily oil passing through the canal. And closing that canal will add about 15 days transit to Europe and about 10 days to the US with you know concurrent costs associated with that. Now it's still the the alleged and the hearsay part of this whole story is why did it get stuck? The actual ship and the ship operators are blaming high winds from a sandstorm, but then there's people or analysts in the in that industry saying it's likely that human error probably played a part. But the interesting thing for me is the knock-on effects. I was reading in the New York Times, they talked about or they, they've they been talking to analysts to t- about what the actual knock-on effects could be. They said, quote, if the ship breaks free by Monday, so tomorrow in our time, the shipping industry can absorb the inconvenience, analysts said, but beyond that, supply chains and consumers could start to see major disruptions. Now, it's noted that most of that disruption will be felt across Europe because of just the the general or just the the location of this actual canal. Um, But that doesn't mean it can't then cause knock on effects to broader parts of the world, like the U S as well. And that's not just because of the canal being stuck itself, but when you, again, when you go to that Marine traffic map view, you'll see the boats that are stuck there. And then there's already reports of ones that have decided to not go that way that were planning to go that way. So, certain shipping companies telling their vessels to just reroute around Africa. I guess in in a sense, making a bit of a bet that perhaps that's going to be quicker or at least easier than sitting there in the Red Sea waiting for it to potentially open over the next few days. In terms of more, I guess, flow-on effects of the impact of something like this, there was an article by Reuters. It's written here by Nadine Awadala and they quote some other industry analysts, but... They say, quote, the blockage could cost global trade $6 billion to $10 billion a week, which was figures that came in from the insurer Allianz on Friday. And ratings agency Moody's expects Europe's manufacturing and car parts suppliers to be the most affected because they operate in the uh, just in time supply chains and say that, you know, port congestion can provide further delays to that just in time supply chain. If you haven't heard of that term just in time, it's supply chain style where say if you're a manufacturer instead of you know using warehouse space and all this kind of stuff to stock up all the stuff that you'll need in terms of materials or goods to make whatever product, whatever you're manufacturing, you can save money especially in terms of storage if you synchronize the actual shipping to arrive just when you need to actually manufacture the good that you're creating so, instead of you having to manage all those goods yourself constantly or the the stock of those goods and you know making sure they're safe and making sure they're not stolen or whatever it is, you know your supply chain is one that works where those goods come in you know exactly when you need them to actually use them to then move your manufacturing forward. And that type of supply chain is much of the world these days. The other thing that's interesting is the impact on oil with on Friday, CNBC reporting that oil prices bounced up on Friday. It's important to note that they'd actually been on a loss over the last few weeks. Well, there's three weeks consecutively of of oil prices going downwards, but the oil price did jump a little bit at the end of the week, just purely on this Suez Canal fiasco in that it, the blocking might, because no one knows at the moment, it could take weeks for it to get free or it could be, freed in the next few days. And so a lot of this is a bit of a guessing game at the moment. And potentially it might be quicker, well, it could be quicker than some of those a bit more pessimistic feelings thought. The New York Times are now reporting that the actual rudder of the the ship has been freed and the dredging's complete and there's I guess the po- the the positive or the optimistic I should say side of this is thinking that they might actually be able to free the ship in the next 48 hours. But that's the crisis in the canal. Like I said, I really recommend jumping on one of those marine traffic websites. It's it's really fascinating just to actually get a live shot of the chaos it's causing. And then you can also see the traffic that's heading around the uh, African Southern Peninsula, the Cape of Good Hope. Because, yeah, like I said, some, some companies are choosing to send their ships around that way just to avoid potential, like I said, Some analysts are saying potential weeks delay. Yeah, and then that might be wrong. Maybe it is freed over the next few days, but they're, I guess, making a bet that maybe it's not. But jump on and have a look. It's it's really interesting. And before I end the podcast today, like I said at the top of the show, we did have a, a listener question. This one came from a Jeremy in Sydney, and he asked that he'd only just started listening and whether he should listen to them all, which is... I kind of just thought about answering him just directly and saying no, but... I'll answer it on the podcast and say no. (laughs) And like I said at the top, it's not a serial style podcast. It's very much based on topical market and economic events that are happening that, that week or that month. But every now and again, we do go through a bit more of an education session on certain topics. So I thought I'd quickly revisit some of those, especially for those people that are listening now and you might not have heard some of those earlier episodes on different topics. Probably the first time I ever did some kind of educational session was all the way back at episode four and that was on dividends. In terms of just explain, I think it was coming up to a big dividend payout week and I decided to actually explain you know, what dividends are, what all the different dates mean like the ex-dividend date and the record date. So you can jump back to episode four if you want to listen to dividends. Uh, episode 10, I can't remember if it was a question that made me talk about this but we did a little bit of a introduction session on how to buy shares for the first time and that was around May because May of 2020 rather that uh, that was because that was a popular topic around then because the market had obviously crashed and started to climb back up we also talked about how GDP is calculated in that episode so that was episode 10 episode 12 we talked about unemployment specifically how they calculate unemployment like what goes into that figure what does it mean episode 20 we looked at the idea of Dollar cost averaging as an investment strategy we also talked about it from the approach of looking at ETFs or exchange traded funds so that's a really interesting one especially if you're starting investing for the first time Uh, moving a bit further along episode 38 which was in November last year it was one where we focused purely on one topic and that is ESG investing or sustainable investing or ethical investing whatever you want to whatever title you want to throw on it but that was episode 38 so i recommend this that was one of the longer ones we've done and that purely explores that topic and the one most recently where we highlighted a something topical was episode 45 which was the we like the stock edition and that was an attempt to explain the gamestop saga an attempt to talk about what short selling was because there's a little bit of complication around what exactly was going on there or what a short squeeze is. Uh, What's the tale of this Wall Street bets community? So episode 45 was the one we talked about that. So so I highlight those ones as they're kind of, they're relatively deeper dives into specific topics that are not necessarily news items of that week. But otherwise, the short answer, like I said, to the question is no, I don't think you need to jump back to the start. Just jump in where we're at now and, and follow along and tell your friends. Always tell your friends. But that is it from me and that is it for the podcast for this week. This has been episode 50 of the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you want to send in a question like Jeremy did, you can do so. You can send it to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. If you would like me to go over any of the things I've done in the past, I'm also happy to do that as well. If you want me to go into a bit more detail on some of those things, we can we can also do that. If you just want to give me some feedback on the show, by all means, send it through. The other way you can support the show is by giving it a rating, like a star rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you use if they allow that kind of thing. But otherwise, I hope you're well. I hope you're enjoying your day. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Market Pulse Podcast. My name is Dion. Cheers.